tonight's special, a triple bill of historical horrors. Panzer Panic von Arnhem's army attacks Tunisia. Bahrain blows up, youths in rage. And Kamini kills Kamini novelist. Plus, coming up, a special report on the growing trend of hippo terrorism in the Congo. Those are the headlines. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. News Bang. The only show that doesn't need a laugh track because the truth is funny enough. 13. 1943. And now, for our first story, let's travel back to a time when the world was at war. It was 1943, and General von Arnim of the 5th Panzer Army decided it would be fun to invade Tunisia. He led his men into battle with gusto, capturing Sidibo Zid like it was going out of fashion. The Allies were not amused and fought back with everything they had, which wasn't much due to rationing, but von Arnim wouldn't give up without a fight or two or three fights, actually. The? How fate? The Battle of Sidi Bouzid raged on for weeks until finally von Arnim emerged victorious from this dusty little town. His triumphant army marched off towards El Alamin, leaving behind them a trail of bloodied tanks and shattered dreams. Some say he even got as far as Sicily before being told to stop by Mussolini himself. 2011 Bahrain the tiny island nation is in turmoil as protesters take to the streets demanding change. It's all kicked off with a day of rage, which seems like an understatement given the carnage that followed. This uprising has been brewing for years, fueled by inequality and repression against their Shia majority. The people have had enough, but don't worry because we have pictures of riot police with flowers being handed out to them. Protesters blocked roads and highways, setting up barricades made from recycled rubbish and empty beer cans. They even chained themselves together like Siamese twins to show solidarity. King Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa responded by calling in his Gulf buddies, who brought along some friends too. It was like a bloody party on our streets. Tear gas filled the air as they stormed through Bab al-Bahrain gate wielding swords and clubs. Despite promises of reform, violence escalated when Ali bin Khalifa al-Khalifa arrived atop an elephant brandishing a whip. Not just any old whip, but one big enough for everyone. The situation remains tense as we speak. Will these brave souls succeed or will their cries fall on deaf ears? Only time will tell if this Arab spring turns into summer or if it becomes another long winter's nightmare. 1989 Ayatollah Khomeini the man with a name like an Italian laundry detergent, today issued a fatwa against Salman Rushdie, author of The Satanic Verses. The novel, which tells the story of a young girl's magical adventures in space with her pet jinn, has offended some Muslims who claim it is blasphemous. Khomeini, best known for his role in the Iranian Revolution and being dead since 1989, took exception to Rushdie's portrayal of the Prophet Muhammad as a character in his book. It's highly disrespectful, said one outraged bystander. Muhammad was not even born until 600 years after this story is set. Rushdie, who couldn't be reached for comment due to hiding under his bed, has defended his work as fiction. It's just a bit of fun, he told no one in particular through gritted teeth. I mean, come on, a talking camel? Please! 
the fatwa calls for Rushdie's death and all copies of the book to be burned, something libraries across Britain are reportedly doing anyway due to its unreadability. News bang, cutting through the crap with the chainsaw of factuality. Presenting the weather forecast, our meteorologist, Shakanaka Giles, with a Valentine's Day special. Today, in the southeast, it'll be a bit like a soggy Valentine's card with drizzle and a chill in the air. Expect a temperature of about 5 degrees, as cold as a lover's heart after a breakup. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a damp squib on bonfire night. Cloudy skies and a chance of rain, with temperatures hovering around 4 degrees. In the north, it'll be a bit like a frozen heart, with temperatures dropping to a bone-chilling 2 degrees. Snow showers are expected, so it'll be a winter wonderland for those celebrating Valentine's Day. Finally, in Scotland, it'll be a bit like a cold shoulder, with temperatures dropping to 4 degrees, and strong winds making it feel even colder. Snow showers are expected, so it'll be a white Valentine's Day for those brave enough to venture out. In summary, a wet and chilly Valentine's Day for most, with a chance of snow in the north and Scotland. So, wrap up warm and keep your loved ones close, and that's all the weather. In the year 2011, the Arab Spring, a wave of protests and uprisings, swept across the Arab world. From Tunisia to Libya, Egypt to Yemen, Syria to Bahrain, citizens demanded political freedom and equality. In Bahrain, the Shia population sought greater rights. The government responded with force, aided by the Gulf Cooperation Council and Peninsula Shield Force. Protests ranged from non-violent civil disobedience to violent resistance. The day of rage on February 14th marked the beginning of Bahrain's national uprising. For more on this story, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable. The 14th of February, 2011. This is the day the roses of peace will be set alight, the day the innocent will be swallowed by the war machine. This is the day the blood of Bahrain will be spilled. As I step out of my bunker, the scent of gunpowder fills the air. The streets are filled with protesters, their faces a mix of hope and fear. The air is electric, a thousand voices raised in unison, calling for change. But the government will not listen. The tanks roll in, their guns trained on the unarmed masses. The sound of gunfire rings out, a symphony of violence and despair. The protesters stand their ground, their bodies shielding the vulnerable. They are the heroes of this story, the ones who dare to dream of a better world. But the government is relentless. The streets are bathed in blood, the cries of the wounded echoing through the night. Yet still the protesters do not back down. They are the embodiment of courage, their spirits unbroken by the horrors around them. 
This is the day the world will remember, the day the people of Bahrain stood up to tyranny, the day the seeds of change were sown. And as I stand here, my heart heavy with sorrow, I know that this is not the end. This is just the beginning. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of the Bahraini uprising. Itatusiti Tudi, 2008. In a tragic turn of events, the 21st century's blood-stained canvas grew darker as a gunman opened fire at Northern Illinois University. The senseless act of violence claimed five innocent lives and left 21 more battered by fate's cruel hand. The perpetrator, a former student, wielded multiple weapons before surrendering to the final embrace of death. The university, steeped in history since its inception in 1895, has satellite centers across various cities. Decalb, the city that cradles this esteemed institution, bears the name of a war hero. As we grapple with the enormity of this calamity, Ken Shit delves deeper into the heart-wrenching aftermath. Good evening, degenerates. We're gonna dive headfirst into the grimy, blood-soaked abyss of 2008, where the sweet embrace of peace and tranquility was brutally shattered by a madman with a death wish and a hunger for innocent blood. Ladies and gentlemen, on this fateful day, February 14th, the sickeningly saccharine holiday of love was transformed into a twisted nightmare as a former student of Northern Illinois University, a bastion of learning and enlightenment, decided to turn his alma mater into a bloodbath. This psychopath, armed to the teeth with an arsenal of deadly weapons, unleashed a hail of bullets upon the unsuspecting students and faculty, leaving five innocent souls lifeless in his wake and 21 others injured, their lives forever scarred by the horrors of that fateful day. The university, founded in 1895 and nestled in the picturesque city of DeKalb, Illinois, was a beacon of hope and knowledge, a place where young minds could flourish and dreams could come true. But on this day, it became a battlefield, a place of terror and carnage that will forever be etched into the minds of those who survived. As we stand here tonight, we are reminded of the fragility of life and the senseless violence that can erupt at any moment. We must never forget the victims of this tragedy, nor the heroes who risk their lives to save others. And we must continue to fight against the scourge of gun violence that plagues our society for the sake of the innocent lives that are being lost every single day. This is Ken Shit signing off from the front lines of this war against senseless violence, reminding you that no matter how dark things get, there will always be light shining through. Let's never forget the victims, and let's fight like hell to make sure this never happens again. 1938 In a tale of intrigue and imperial ambition, the Singapore naval base, christened HMS Sembawang, emerged as a cornerstone of British defence policy in the Far East. A veritable fortress, it served as a China station base, a sanctuary for the Imperial Japanese Navy, and a staging ground for the Royal Navy's Far East Fleet. A project of staggering scale and complexity, its purpose was clear, to deter Japanese aggression with a show of strength and resolve. Singapore was selected as the stage upon which this grand theatre would unfold in 1919. And now, reporter Hardiman Pesto will delve deeper into this story of maritime might and international intrigue. Martin, I'm here at the grand opening of the Singapore Naval Base, which, as you know, has been years in the making. 
There's a real sense of occasion here today, with dignitaries from all over the Empire gathered to mark this momentous development. Who exactly is there, Pesto? Give us some names. Well, of course we have His Majesty King George VI and his wife Queen Elizabeth here to officially open the base. And then there's the First Lord of the Admiralty, one Duff Cooper. Duff Cooper? The First Lord of the Admiralty in 1938 was Sir Samuel Hoare. Yes, that's right. Sir Samuel Hoare is here, my mistake. And present from the Singaporean side? Oh, absolutely. We have Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew here, along with President Tony Tan. Pesto? Lee Kuan Yew wasn't even born in 1938, let alone Prime Minister, which Singapore has never had. And Tony Tan certainly wasn't President over 50 years before the office even existed. Right, of course, silly me. Well, we have some other local dignitaries whose names escape me presently. I'm sure they do. Can you see any Japanese military representatives there? Given this base is primarily aimed at deterring Japanese aggression, as you said. As a matter of fact, yes, we have Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto here, leader of the Japanese Combined Fleet. He said he's happy to see the base opening, as it will be a fine asset for the Imperial Navy once Japan takes control of Singapore. Yamamoto said that, did he? Yes, absolutely. I have it right here in my notes. Written in English, I presume. Tell me, Pesto, what year is this meant to be again? 1938. And when was Yamamoto killed? 1945. So a dead man is in attendance seven years prior to his death? Carrying on conversations in English? Well, perhaps I've made a slight error regarding the exact identities of those here today. But I can assure you this base is opening to much fanfare and celebration. I've no doubt of that. Can you see the HMS Prince of Wales at dock? The Prince of Wales? Here in Singapore? Yes, I believe I just glimpsed her majestic form in the harbour. That's interesting, given that ship wasn't even laid down until three years later. Where are you actually reporting from? The Marina Bay Sands Hotel. In 1938? No, today there's been a bit of a mix-up. I think there may well have been. Hardiman Pesto, completely at sea in Singapore. News bang, unraveling the tangled web of deceit one fact at a time. Mm. 2005. Our correspondent, Calamity Prenderville now, to regale us with a British victory that is close to her heart. The glorious invention of YouTube. Today we're celebrating a true British triumph. Remember when you had to physically rewind a video cassette to watch the same thing again? Or worse, rewind it for the next person? Well, those dark days are behind us thanks to YouTube, a revolutionary platform that lets you watch videos over and over without lifting a finger. YouTube is the brainchild of two brilliant minds from PayPal, a British company that specializes in moving money around the world with just a few clicks. In 2005, they decided to apply their expertise to video content. And thus, YouTube was born. The platform is simple. You upload your video, and then millions of people can watch it at their leisure. It's like having your own television channel, but without the need for pesky licensing fees or an actual television. But YouTube isn't just for watching videos, it's also for creating them. With just a smartphone and some creativity, you too can become a YouTube sensation. Who knows? You might even earn enough ad revenue to buy a real television. So here's to YouTube. Another shining example of British innovation at its finest is not just a website, 
It's a cultural phenomenon that has changed the way we consume and create video content forever. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang signing off. Newsbang, poking holes in the balloon of BS. In a development that would shape the world of technology for generations to come, the computing tabulating recording company, later known as IBM, solidified its position as a global titan in 1924. A colossus in over 175 countries, IBM's reign as the unchallenged patent king remains unbroken for 29 consecutive years. And now, to discuss IBM's remarkable rise and its impact on the global economy, we turn to our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway. The stock market soared today. Dogger, slight or moderate, IBM's shares up to 618,123,765.4-21,356. And we have a record breaker. IBM reports profits at £17. Humber, fair. So this year marks the 100th anniversary of IBM, the computing tabulating recording company, turning into a giant. Shannon, occasionally rough. In 1924, it became one of the largest companies in the world, making it the oldest tech giant. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. IBM holds the title for the most annual U.S. patents for 29 years, now known as the IBM effect. Rockall, West, becoming variable. The currency markets saw a boost as well. Fitzroy, slight, occasionally poor. The pound jumped 0.6 of a cent against the dollar. Viking, slight or moderate. Forbes, on the other hand, reports IBM's trading value increased, creeping up to four. Lundy, fair. Meanwhile, in 1924, IBM made a significant contribution to the business world as we know it today. Trafalgar, west, becoming southwest, four or five. IBM's computing and recording technology revolutionized the way businesses operate. The value of IBM's market capitalization reached the heavens, rising to 17 pounds. Hebrides, occasionally rough. And that's the financial outlook. In conclusion, Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. IBM's dominance continues to grow. In 1924, it laid the foundation for the technology giant we know today. The next few decades saw IBM's reach extend globally, influencing countless industries and earning a place in history as one of the world's most valuable companies. Business. 1992. Today, the year 1992, marks a significant milestone in Singapore's history, as Sri Temasek, the official residence of the Prime Minister since self-governance in 1959, is declared a national monument. Constructed in 1869, this architectural marvel has withstood the test of time, and now stands as a beacon of Singapore's rich heritage. The current Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Lung, continues to reside within its hallowed halls. National monuments in Singapore are safeguarded under the Preservation of Monuments Act. And from Singapore, we hand over to our correspondent Smithsonian Moss for an exclusive look at Sri Tamasek. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
Waho, my culture vultures. It's Valentine's Day, but instead of smooching, we're diving into some juicy historical deets. The year is 1992, and guess what's getting hotter than a summer fling in Singapore? Sri Tamasek, baby. That's right. The official crib of the Prime Minister of Singapore has been declared a national monument. Built in 1869, this place is older than your grandma's dentures and has seen more action than a high school prom night. Now, this isn't just any old house, my friends. This is the house that has been the official residence since Singapore gained self-governance in 1959. And let me tell you, it's been home to more political drama than a season of House of Cards, the current Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Lung, is probably kicking back in his historical digs, sipping on a Singapore sling, and laughing at all of us peasants. But hold up. It's not all fun and games at Sri Tamasek. Thanks to the Preservation of Monuments Act, this bad boy is protected like a virgin at a frat party. You can't touch it. You can't change it. You can't even look at it funny without getting a stern talking to from the Singaporean government. So what does this mean for us regular folks? Well, we can't party in it, that's for sure. But we can marvel at its historical significance and the fact that it's been standing strong for over a century. It's like the Keith Richards of buildings. It's seen some stuff, man. In conclusion, while you're out there tonight, looking for love in all the wrong places, remember that some things, like Sri Tamasek, are timeless and unchanging. And that's either super romantic or super depressing, depending on how your date goes tonight. Happy Valentine's Day, and remember, history is the ultimate wingman. News bang. The news as it should be. 1989. The year is 1989, and the world is ablaze with a literary firestorm. The esteemed Ayatollah Khomeini, first supreme leader of Iran, has declared a fatwa upon Salman Rushdie, author of the polarizing novel The Satanic Verses. This work, inspired by the life of Muhammad, has ignited a tempestuous debate about censorship and religious violence. As Rushdie's name is etched into history books, one wonders if his ink will be met with accolades or edicts. Now to delve deeper into this blazing tale of literature and controversy, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Thank you, thank you. Always a pleasure to be back on the old newsbang stage. Though I must say, the green room still smells distinctly of kippers, thanks to that incident with the Archbishop of Canterbury last week. Remind me to send a fruit basket to Lambeth Palace as an apology. <laughs> now I was just speaking to our producer, Mr Higginbottom Smythe, backstage, and he mentioned today marks the 35th anniversary of that whole Rushdie and the Ayatollah business. I remember it like it was yesterday. All the fuss and nonsense over a novel, if you can believe it. Not exactly uncharted territory for old Salman, though, eh? He was always getting up people's noses and rattling cages with his writing. An agent provocateur of the literary world. <laughs> Why, it reminds me of a story from my university days about another student, a budding author named Reginald Featherquill. Reg fancied himself the next big thing in satirical fiction. He delighted in penning controversial stories and poems, mocking anything and everything he could think of. The university faculty, the dining hall food, 
the personal hygiene of his fellow classmates, nothing was sacred to Reginald Featherquill. <laughs> well, eventually his insults went too far when he wrote a scandalous parody version of the school song. He made copies and plastered them all over the campus overnight. The next morning, the university president, Sir Roderick Flapsworth, was furious. He declared Reginald banned from all campus facilities and suspended indefinitely. <laughs> Poor old Reg was devastated. Writing risque stories was his passion. So he snuck back on campus that very night and papered the buildings with apologies and pleas for another chance. Sir Roderick finally took pity and agreed to lift the suspension on one condition. Reginald must stand naked in the quad at noon the next day wearing a sign reading I'm sorry for my foolish mockery as penance. <laughs> Reginald reluctantly agreed to the punishment. But the next day at noon, when he disrobed and revealed the sign, it actually read, I'm sorry my foolish mockery was so small. <laughs> well, Sir Roderick blew his top again. Last I heard, Reginald is still banned from campus, but continues writing his satires anonymously. Some folks never learn, but you have to admire his cheeky spirit, eh? Anyhow, that's all for tonight, folks. Do tip your waitstaff and be kind to one another out there. And just time to glance at tomorrow's headlines. The Guardian. Soviets say Dasvidanya to Afghanistan. There's a pull-out section on the nine-year saga. The Times, Yamashita's hand forces British to fold in Singapore. They've got a diagram there of a pair of aces. The Telegraph, French's cavalry charges to Kimberley's rescue. And there's a special on the 124-day calendar. That's it. On the day that a man who stole a calendar got 12 months, they say his days are numbered. Until tomorrow, good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>